Do you have the skill, the bravery, and the patience to be the greatest Captain Interstell has ever seen? Well, let's find out with Starflight, this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity, or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 58 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and I'm here once again to chat with you guys about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Uh, show's a little late. Life has been very busy as of late. I kind of figured once the uh, once the summer was going to be through that uh, all my uh, <laughs> kind of outdoorsy endeavors were going to uh, were going to be put aside, but of course, I like I think I mentioned last show, I'm actually running a half marathon in Niagara Falls uh, next weekend, or this coming weekend on October 26th, so um, <laughs> I'm way into uh, prepping for that since uh, we kind of got into it right at the last minute, so we're pouring on those miles, and uh, unfortunately running 18 kilometers takes uh, a little bit of time out of my weekend, <laughs> but uh, you know, we've been very lucky, the weather's been uh, pretty much on our side, lately it's been raining a little bit more. It's been cooling down, but, um, you know, frankly, I like running in the, uh, in the cool. I don't like running in the rain, but I like running when it's, when it's cooler because, uh, it's more comfortable. You're not sweating. You're not huffing. You're not drinking as much water. Um, it's just overall, overall more comfortable. So, uh, looking forward to the race on the weekend, but right now, uh, we're doing a show. So enough about that. Let's get to the news. Uh, not a ton of it this week, I'm sure there's more that I missed, but uh, the things I want to talk about are uh, are few. So firstly, back on October 5th, uh, Blizzard released an update to their their Blizzard launcher. I don't know, the little app that you use to launch all their games, Warcraft, Starcraft, Diablo, uh, etc. Um, and that update added, uh, among other things, icons and backgrounds from Warcraft 3. Now that's a pretty strong suggestion to me that we will be getting... Uh, native support for at least that game, if not earlier Warcraft games and uh, hopefully even Starcraft uh, via Battle.net. Uh, we did hear at BlizzCon uh, last year, next BlizzCon's coming up very soon, but at the last BlizzCon, which was either last year or the two years ago, uh, that the company did have a small team looking at uh, getting the old games up and running on modern systems. Uh, so let's hope that this is a good sign of, uh, of some progress on that front. Next, in Gabriel Knight news, the 20th anniversary edition of Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, is out. It's getting all kinds of reviews from a wide variety of sources, a wide variety of points of view, wide variety of perspectives, some looking at it in comparison to the old game, some looking at it as a standalone, how it shapes up today, uh, stuff like that. I've got a copy myself. Which, uh, which I intend to play through in the very near future so, uh, so I can give you guys my informed opinion on it. I did play through the demo, and uh, I enjoyed it, but uh, I'm going to reserve judgment on this remake of one of my favorite adventure games of all time uh, until I play through it a little bit more. Until then, if you are a fan or you're just interested in picking it up, uh, it is available on both Steam and GOG for, I believe, $20 US. Uh, finally in the news, uh, if you guys have been paying attention to the show, or to me on... Uh, 
on social media, you will know that uh, I launched a Patreon page for the show. Uh, I put a little video over there, but I'll explain real quick. Patreon is a way for you guys to um, to support the show by uh, by donating or supporting it with uh, a little bit of money uh, for each episode. So, you know, if you want to give something like a dollar or two or five, I even got a couple people giving 10 bucks. Thanks so much to those guys. But thank you to everyone. I've got uh, nine people so far who are donating to the show. And, um, you know, through that, I'm going to be able to cover my costs. And if we get to certain uh, certain levels, let's say, uh, I'm going to do a couple more things per, you know, for, for the show. So uh, we're at $41 right now at $50 in, in just nine more dollars. Uh, instead of doing the news at the beginning of the show, like I just did, because that's kind of controversial, uh, I'm going to roll that out into another monthly episode. So one more episode per month which uh, will roll up kind of all the news for the month and I'll be able to get a little more into it, maybe do something like 15 to 30 minutes that, uh, you know, we could talk a bit more about current events and events that affect uh, the Dawson pre-Windows XP gaming era and stuff like that. And, you know, more ways for you guys to uh, to email in, to send voicemails. Maybe I can even drag some of you guys onto, uh, onto that little show and we can have a little chat. And uh, if we go... Up from there, I want to do some uh, some group kind of uh, panels, maybe a quarterly kind of a thing. And then beyond that, maybe I can do stuff with like dev interviews. Uh, this is honestly kind of just a way uh, I'm, as much as you may believe it or not, actually a pretty shy person. And um, so this show is kind of a way for me to get out of my comfort zone and put myself out there a little bit more. And uh, having these goals will kind of force me to really go out of my comfort zone. Like I'm you know, things like dev interviews. I know a lot of people do them. They frankly terrify me. <laughs> so, uh, having a little kick in the butt to force me to do stuff like that will, uh, first of all, make me a little braver. <laughs> and second of all, uh, make the show a lot better. So, uh, it's patreon.com slash UMB If you guys want to go check it out, see what it's all about, watch my video. And, um, if you are willing to, uh, to, to give a little bit to the show, it's a, you know, value for value model. If you get value out of the show, then, uh, you know, feel free to put some value back into the show. You can be my boss, have a little bit of a say in uh, how I do things. But uh, aside from that, if you're willing to give, I would uh, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. Okay, so before we get rolling, we have got a few emails. Uh, first one is from good friend of the show, Elima. She writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Love the theme hospital episode. I really enjoy hearing what you managed to dig up on these great old games. Sorry, but I'll have to take a backseat on Starflight since I've never heard of it. For what I gather, it did inspire the Mass Effect series, which I adore. So I'm extremely curious. Uh, I wanted to drop you a quick line since I recently played Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers. It most certainly does hold up today, even though the graphics are a bit dated. The voice acting and the uh, compelling story certainly make up for that. I haven't quite glommed on to Gabriel Knight as a character, however. I'm not sure if it's his macho cockiness, but uh, he isn't appealing to as appealing to me as other player characters of the time, such as Guybrush Threepwood, King Graham, or even bumbling Leisure Suit Larry. I did develop a soft spot for Gabriel's assistant Grace, though, and I stayed hooked right until the end thanks to the great story. Would absolutely recommend it to adventure game enthusiasts. Anyhow, many thanks for your show. I've never played G. I, I'd have never played GK otherwise. I wonder what the new remake will be like. Take care, Alima slash Emily. Well, thanks so much, Alima, and um, 
I'm actually surprised because I know you a little bit now, and you're a big uh, you're a big adventure gamer, and uh, this was a big one for me. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad you got to play it. And you know, Gabriel as a character, I think is supposed to come off as a little bit obnoxious, and uh, you know, kind of I. I don't mind him personally, but I would imagine as uh, as a woman, you might not uh, like his kind of uh, more womanizing type tendencies so much. And uh, with regard to Grace, frankly, as uh, I guess the game came out in 93, so I was a just starting high school at that time. And uh, I think, frankly, I had, I had a crush on Grace. I really, really liked her. So... Uh, yeah, great characters. I like Detective Mosley and, you know, voiced by Mark Hamill and, and all those guys in in the game. So definitely uh, an interesting one. I'm glad I covered it and I'm glad you got to play it. Next, we have an email from Ian and he writes, Hi, Joe. In the Theme Hospital podcast, one of my favorite 90s games, you mentioned how you love getting feedback from pilots, doctors, etc. for games that relate to their fields. I am a huge fan of Pharaoh and thought you might be interested to learn that I am, in fact, a pharaoh myself in real life. I have yet to build a pyramid, I seem to do quite poorly on collecting taxes, and my mining of gold is at an all-time low. I put these shortcomings down to never actually making it through the entire game, and hope that thanks to GOG.com and a podcast from you, that I will one day be able to complete pharaoh and become the ruler of my real real life kingdom. Keep up the great work. Love the show. Ian. P.S. If you know some people who would be happy to volunteer lifting large pieces of stone to build my pyramid, please let me know. Well, thank you, Ian. And uh, it's good to know that I've got real life pharaohs listening to the show. And I imagine that was a uh, veiled suggestion that I should cover pharaoh. And um, yeah, I certainly will. It's on my list. Um, I do love these kind of builder games. Uh, Caesar is another one that's on my list to cover. And uh, I think I do know some people at my gym that uh, like lifting really heavy things. So uh, I'll let them know and they may, might want to come and uh, come and help you out. Next, we've got an email from Andreas and he writes, good day, kind sir. It's been a while since I emailed and uh, I should fix that. Unfortunately, I've never played Theme Hospital, but it sounds awesome. This is one I might actually pick up and play. Your review reminds me a lot of this casino game I used to play. Uh, It was not Casino Tycoon, but another casino management game, which seemingly shares a lot of Theme Hospital's humor. I googled it, but unfortunately uh, wasn't able to find its title. I mainly remember sending people to cheat in competing casinos, having my bouncers beat up cheaters in my own basement, and sacking and replacing the Hulk crew when they asked for too many raises. Also, kind of unrelated, but I've played this indie game recently that I felt I should tell you about. Ever heard of The Fall? I hardly ever play point-and-click adventures, but uh, I had a great time playing this one. It's got beautiful art, good humor, and a great set of characters. Uh, You're the AI of a combat suit. You've crashed on an unknown planet, and your pilot is unconscious. Now it's your job to keep him alive. Uh, You can find the the link to that game at www.overthemoongames.com. I'll put that link in the show notes. But uh, yeah, that sounds like a really, really cool, uh, a really cool idea. I like that. So you're kind of like uh, you're Cortana and uh, and Master Chief is unconscious and you got to kind of try and get his his body somewhere. That sounds like a great idea. And actually, that casino game um, name of it doesn't come to mind. I don't recognize it. But any of you guys out there, if uh, if you recognize that casino game, let me know, because that sounds like a lot of fun. So thank you very much, Andreas, for that. And uh, yeah, please do keep on uh, keep on emailing in. I love getting uh, love getting notes from you. 
Next, we have Father Beast. Uh, Father Beast writes, Joe, first, I've never played Theme Hospital, but you gave it such a good recommendation that uh, I've picked it up on GOG.com and will give it a whirl sometime soon. The only thing I knew previously was from the manual to Dungeon Keeper, which had a Q&A with the developer in the back. When asked about how making Dungeon Keeper had changed him, he replied that now when he goes back and plays Theme Hospital, he keeps wanting to slap the nurses. <laughs> Second, a small update on PC booters from the previous episodes. I listened to someone describe them in detail on the DOS Nostalgia podcast. It seems they were originally made so that they wouldn't have to load DOS into the system, but just enough uh, have just enough system to be able to run the game, leaving more memory space for their game to run in. The fact that it made for a handy and easy method of copy protection was sort of a happy side effect. Once again, when installing games to your hard drive became popular, PC booters sort of went out of style. Third, since I got into Twitter, uh, you have linked me with a few podcasts that I now listen to, namely the DOS Nostalgia podcast, the Space Quest Historian podcast, and Backseat Designers. Are there any more of this kind that uh, you know of out there? When I try to Google retro podcasts, I get a bunch of ones talking about console games. Last... I know that I haven't been responding very much lately, but you have been covering a lot of games that I just haven't played. Rest assured, I still look forward and listen to each episode eagerly, Father Beast. Well, thanks, Father Beast. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, th those three podcasts, Space Quest Historian, DOS Nostalgia, and Backseat Designers are really, really great. The guys that do them, uh, Anatoly for DOS Nostalgia and uh, Trolls and Frederick Olson, I believe on Backseat Designers and Trolls himself on uh, Space Quest Historian. Yeah, these guys, they're smart guys. Um, I feel like an idiot when I talk into them. Uh, I was actually on a little while back. Um, the uh, Space Trolls, the Space Quest historian, had uh, had a Space Quest super fan hangout where uh, a bunch of us all got together on a Google Hangout and and played through Space Quest One. Uh, one guy finished uh, the game in like fifteen minutes or something, and I actually was on for a few hours and uh, ended up having to drop off because I had people coming over and I wasn't able to get through uh, all of Space Quest One myself. But uh, yeah, those guys, all of them really know what they're talking about. They love DOS games. They know way more about them than I do. Um, as for other ones, it, it gets tough because a lot of retro game podcasts do kind of focus on consoles, NES, and, and that kind of thing. Um, Really, any of you guys out there, if there's any other retro game podcasts you listen to, uh, let me know because, hey, I, I, want, uh, I want some of them too. Whew, so thanks, everyone, for those. It uh, looks like uh, Theme Hospital gen generated uh, quite a lot of interest. I'm glad that some people got to, got to try it out or have or are soon going to try it out because uh, it really, really is an awesome game. And uh, yeah, everyone should play it because it's, it's really quite unique. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time to get to the main event, Starflight. So Starflight is a two-game series developed by Binary Systems and is published by Electronic Arts. Uh, the first game released for DOS in the year 1986, and its name was, of course, Starflight. So let's talk genre. Now, this is another one of those games that doesn't necessarily want to fit in a box. Uh, Starflight is, at its core, an adventure RPG game. Now, we've seen games like this before, and uh, frankly, I'm not really sure if adventure-slash-RPG is really a hybrid genre. I mean, technically, as we've discussed many, many times, an adventure game is a game where a hero character plays through a story or completes a quest uh, while being faced with various puzzles along the way. Now, a role-playing game 
features a hero character playing through a story or completing a quest uh, generally along with other less important side quests while solving various puzzles along the way. Granted, while the puzzles are the main focus of an adventure game, they tend to be a bit more secondary in, uh, in RPGs. In addition, RPGs also feature character progression in the form of skill development. Uh, while you progress through the game, you gather some kind of resource, either money, experience points, skill points, or something like that, and you invest that resource into new skills for your character. Uh, these can usually take the form of classic kind of Dungeons and Dragons style skills, such as strength, dexterity, intelligence, and others, but they can really be any kind of skill you would use in the game. RPGs also tend to feature combat, so I guess RPGs and adventure games are different, aside from the fact that uh, they both have stories and puzzles. Another thing Starflight is, is a sandbox game. Now, sandbox games allow the player to progress the story at their own pace, if there is even kind of any story at all. This also affords the player the option of completely ignoring any story and taking the game in their own direction. Many simulations are sandboxes, you know, games like SimCity and stuff like that, but um, sandbox games of other genres are less common, especially in the DOS days, since uh, they tend to require a very large world, which most old machines, especially in the time of Starflight, uh, just couldn't handle. Today, you got games like Grand Theft Auto, Shadows of Mordor, stuff like that, where you have, the, you know, even uh, things like Elder Scrolls. Maybe the later Elder Scrolls games more than the earlier ones, but, you know, where we had more powerful computers, more storage space, more RAM, where you could create massive worlds. But in, you know, the uh, the mid to late 80s, that was a bit more challenging. So, but we're going to see how the, all of that shakes out. So, as I said, sandbox games need to have a big world for them to exist in. Now, a big world isn't interesting if it's just big and it isn't particularly fleshed out. Uh, the world of Starflight certainly is interesting and fleshed out, so let's discuss the game's story. So, it's the year 4620, and we find ourselves on the planet Arth. Not Earth, Arth. That's A-R-T-H. Now, Arth is the last surviving outpost of what is known as the Old Empire. This Old Empire used to span the galaxy and uh, united, uh, maybe not all, but at least most alien races together, very much like the uh, United Federation of Planets in Star Trek. Arth itself also used to be a paradise, but uh, heavy radiation forced the colonists of Arth to flee underground. Uh, today... The planet Arth, the last vestige, the last outpost of the old empire, is a scorched, brown, dead planet. Recently, though, the radiation has dissipated enough to allow the colonists living underground to uh, explore the surface in detail. So in the year 4604, a discovery was made in Arth's southern hot zone. The discovery was a vast underground network seemingly created by Arth's original colonists, uh, information was discovered pointing to the fact that these colonists were part of a group named Noah 2 and originated from a planet called Earth. That's E-A-R-T-H, the planet we are currently sitting on. So information pulled from the databanks in this underground complex tells the story of the original colonists. Uh, there was a war and the Empire was on the brink of defeat. A colony ship was sent far away to Earth uh, and a colony was established. Now, for unknown reasons, 
the colony could not maintain its level of technology. We also have no information regarding the final fate of the Empire in its home system. Aside from historical data, however, technical references were also found, including a lot of data relating to a substance named Endurium, which was used to power the superphotonic drives of starships. Luckily, sufficient stores of Endurium were also found. This allowed scientists to create prototype starships of their own. This led to the founding of the Interstellar Corporation and the launch of the first expedition in the year 4615. 13 ships and 78 crew left in search of new planets, resources, and alien races. Out of those 13 ships, two have returned. Since each ship only carried enough provisions for a, a single year, it's assumed the other 11 ships and 66 crew members have been lost. You are a ship captain trainee who is part of the second expedition. Will you do better? You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. All right, time to chat about some gameplay. As a new captain, we begin our mission at the starport orbiting Arth. Starport is our main base of operations and where we do all of our kind of housekeeping chores. Here we can recruit and train our crew, store money in the bank, buy and sell resources, upgrade our ship, and finally get information about the universe around us. Uh, when we begin, we've got basically what amounts to the beginnings of a ship and, uh, and we've got no crew. We also have 12,000 monetary units or MUs and 20 cubic meters of endurium, which your ship uses for fuel. This is enough for, shall we say, a very humble beginning. So first things first, we need a crew. You can recruit up to six crew members to fill the various positions on your ship. These positions are captain, science officer, navigator, engineer, communications officer, and doctor. Again, the parallels with Star Trek here are definitely at play. So to man these positions, you can choose individuals from five races. Each race has advantages and disadvantages. Excelling at any one skill or aptitude means that race will have a higher maximum potential in that discipline. Uh, as in most games, humans are good generalists. Uh, they can take a moderate amount of damage and excel at science and are very good at learning new skills. The Velox or Veloxi are an insect-like race who are very durable thanks to their exoskeletons. Uh, they're average at learning new skills, but excel at navigation and engineering. The Thrin are a reptilian race that excels at diplomacy and communication. They also have a deep-seated animosity toward the Elowan. Now, the Elowan are a plant-like race that are uh, very fragile, but excel at quickly increasing their skill levels. They also excel at communication and medicine. And since the Thrin don't like them, they don't like the Thrin. Finally, we have androids. Now, androids are the most durable crew, but they have their skills preset in that they are hardwired and uh, they cannot increase their skills in any way. Uh, they're somewhat skilled at navigation and engineering and fairly poor at everything else. Now, you'll notice that I mentioned that two races don't like each other. This actually has an effect on gameplay. It's not just background info. Uh, if you encounter an Elowan ship and you have a Thrin aboard, the Elowan won't take too kindly to you and vice versa. If you have one of each on your ship, then both of the races won't like you. 
So you recruit your crew and uh, set their positions. Hopefully, you set them based on uh, your, your crew's inherent aptitudes. However, you're free to assign however you like. You want a crew of all androids? Go for it. Uh, note also that you can assign a single crew member to multiple posts if you'd like. However, that tends to mean that the uh, that damage, you know, either on a planet or in your ship, we'll go over that later, will be spread uh, over a smaller pool of hit points. And also, you know, a lot of crew members will not be good at many different things. They'll kind of be excel at one or two things. So having them do too many different jobs means uh, you're going to have someone who's a jack of all trades and a master of none. Next, we need to worry about our ship. As I said, at this point, it's pretty basic. We have class one engines, very little cargo capacity, and no weapons. We might have lasers, actually. We might have like level one lasers. I have to go and double check that. Anyways, our number one priority is to add more cargo pods. The more stuff we can carry, the longer we can stay out, and the more money we can, uh, or the more stuff we can bring back to sell, to make money. Over time, we can also upgrade our engines, which uh, increases our efficiency. We can upgrade our shields, which of course protect the ship from attack and then regenerate. Uh, armor, which protects the ship as well when the shields fail. And finally, weapons. Now weapons consist of missiles and lasers. Missiles are effective at long range, while lasers are for close in fighting. Once your ship is upgraded to your heart's desire, and also to the extent that your wallet will allow, uh, you should christen it with a name. I called mine the uh, ISS UMB cast. ISS, as I guess, is Imperial Starship, and uh, you don't get to choose that. You just get to choose the name. Now, if you've got any money left, and uh, you should, hopefully, uh, you should train up your crew a little bit. Initially, I kind of feel, and a lot of the strategy guides that, uh, that I read and that I played with, uh, your science officer and your navigator are fairly important to have skilled up, at least early on. A bad navigator will uh, fly your ship into dangerous situations and perform poorly in combat. A bad science officer will misinterpret data and provide you with incorrect information. Later on, as you encounter alien races, your communications officer also becomes very important. Uh, a low-skill communication officer lacks the ability to translate alien languages uh, which will make communication very difficult, if not impossible, because uh, you'll have no idea what uh, what these other aliens are saying. All right, so we've got a crew and a ship. One last stop before we take off is operations. Now, operations is where you uh, talk to your bosses and you read your notices. Here you get clues as to where you might find resource caches, artifacts, where there's some uh, reports of alien activity, and also this is where you're notified of any additional orders and story developments kind of in the game. Uh, you can also look at your performance evaluations here to see you know, how, you're, uh, how you're doing as a captain. So with some information in hand, it is time to launch. Now launching from the starport requires uh, a little bit of work in the form of copy protection. Uh, Starflight ships with a code wheel. Now lining up a series of terms, I believe it's three, generates a code which you have to type into the console to confirm launch. Now, if you get it wrong, the game will kind of ask you if you're sure. And if you would say yes, or if you enter it wrong again, the game will allow you to continue playing for six days of in-game time. At the end of this six-day grace period, the space police will show up and offer you one final opportunity to enter the proper copy protection code. 
If you don't do that this time, which basically at this point means either you really don't know how to use a code wheel or you just don't have it, uh, your ship is destroyed by the space police. So once you launch successfully, and let's assume that you do, uh, let's look a little bit at the uh, UI. So all your interactions with the ship and your crew are via a menu system. Now the top menu displays a list of crew positions, and then each crew position has an associated submenu of actions. For example, the navigator can maneuver the ship, he can raise and lower the shields, and he can arm and fire the weapons. The science officer can scan objects, analyze them, and report on the ship's status. Uh, the skill level of the associated crew member in that associated position uh, affects all of the actions under their specific submenu. And it's not the slickest UI in the world, but for 1986, it's not so bad. So now we get into the meat of the game, space exploration. Uh, you have a few goals, any of which you can kind of decide to pursue. This is a sandbox game, remember. Uh, you could try and explore as much of the galaxy as possible. Uh, this can take time, as uh, Starflight contains 270 star systems containing a total of 800 planets. Uh, you can, and you sort of have to, uh, focus as well on exploring, uh, sorry, exploiting the planets you come across. Uh, you do this by landing on planets and surveying them for valuable minerals, including endurium, which uh, you need for fuel, and you can also sell for a pretty penny at the Trade Depot. Uh, you can also capture and catalog new life forms and uh, search abandoned ruins for clues and artifacts, which can also be sold for profit. Finally, one of the most lucrative ways to make a quick buck is to recommend newly discovered habitable planets for colonization. Now, you can't just do this willy-nilly. The planet has to meet certain criteria relating to temperature, weather, gravity, things like that. So to do all of this, you have to land your ship on a planet and explore using your terrain vehicle. Uh, you can land on any planet you'd like, but if the gravity is at crushing level, that is above 8G, uh, your ship's going to be destroyed. Your science officer can determine if it's safe or not. Of course... Even if the planet is technically safe to land on, exploring a planet's surface isn't always a walk in the park. Uh, you can encounter bad weather and hostile wildlife. Uh, this is where the durability of your crew comes in. If they take too much damage and they all die, your game is over. Your terrain vehicle can also be destroyed or run out of fuel. This results in a hefty fine and uh, having to have your crew walk back to the ship. Of course, as they're walking back to the ship, they are exposed to the elements, and so they may die kind of on this hazardous trek. Keeping an eye on your fuel and your crew's health is incredibly important when you are surveying a planet. Of course, in your travels, you'll also encounter other alien races in space. Some of them will be friendly, and some of them won't. Uh, you can also influence their initial reactions to you based on your stance when you're meeting them. Uh, if your ship's shields are up and your weapons are armed the aliens might not react in the same manner as if you were kind of approaching them totally defenseless. However, not all aliens take pacifism as a friendly gesture. Uh, you can also set the tone of your communications to them from friendly to hostile to ob obsequious, which I'm, I'm not sure what that means, but I think it means kind of a little bit jerky. Someone who speaks better English than me, let me know what obsequious means. Now, you can travel from system to system in two ways. Firstly, there's the old-fashioned way via standard interstellar travel. Uh, this uses fuel and takes time. The other method is via continuum fluxes. These are effectively wormholes which uh, instantaneously link two distant points in the galaxy. Now, 
These seem like they're a great idea, but you need a highly skilled navigator to pinpoint your new location after entering the continuum flux. Because basically when you pop out, you don't really know where you are. Your navigator has to kind of figure out your spatial coordinates, which uh, you use on the star map. And uh, if you can't, well, maybe you'll get lucky and you'll find your way home, but otherwise uh, you may not. Uh, Space combat consists of maneuvering, firing lasers at close range, and uh, firing missiles at long range. Lasers always hit, but you got to be right in the uh, bad guy's face. And uh, missiles can miss, but they also inflict three times the damage of uh, their equivalent laser. As a result of combat, your ship's systems can uh, take individual damage. Uh, It's obviously your engineer's job to repair them, and major repairs can be done for a price at Starport. Now, over time, a uh, larger overarching story presents itself, uh, which you could choose to pursue or not. Otherwise, you could just kind of keep exploring and meeting aliens and all that noise. But uh, frankly, the story is pretty interesting. There's some cool plot twists and uh, and stuff like that. So uh, it is it is worth pursuing. Now, of course, I've been talking quite a bit about gameplay, but there's even more to it than this. This is a really big game. Uh, Each alien race you encounter is quite different and require different tactics, both uh, you know, in combat and uh, diplomatically to deal with. Uh, the game has quite a bit of humor in it, and, uh, you know, it really does come across quite quirky. And uh, many of the planets, even though they're kind of procedurally generated and all that, f- they, they do feel interesting and unique. Uh, the game really does have that kind of one more turn, let me explore one more planet, let me, you know, visit one more system kind of vibe to it that many, many great games do. Now, it does contain one major stumbling block, which I will discuss in detail in the next section. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, tech focus time. So, Starflight came out in 1986, so we don't need much here. Uh, From what I could find, it seems all you really needed to run the game was an IBM XT, that's an 8088, or or compatible. Graphically speaking, uh, the game supported a variety of, shall we say, interesting uh, graphics modes, at least according to the batch file UI that runs before the game itself. Uh, It offered five choices. Black and white, RGB, color TV or composite, Hercules, and EGA. I, of course, chose the big daddy, EGA at 320 by 200 with a depth of 16 colors. Interestingly, uh, at least on the GOG version that I played, choosing anything other than EGA causes the game to either crash, hang, or display garbage. Now, there might be some uh, DOS box settings I could play with to get the game to play in Hercules or something, but frankly, why would I want to? So, technical requirements aside, since uh, basically the requirements are that you needed a computer, there's a very interesting technical aspect to Starflight. As I said in the gameplay section, for the time, and frankly, even for today, uh, the Starflight universe was huge. Sadly, 
At the time, most PCs didn't ship with hard drives, or if they did, they were incredibly small. I think I remember my first hard drive being like five megs or something. So how do they save all the state information uh, so you could pick up your game where you left off? Well, the game itself shipped on two 360K floppies, so two low-density floppy disks. Uh, A standard way to go about saving a game was uh, to have a save disk, that is a third and maybe even a fourth Uh, game disc supplied by the player on which to save your games. Now that means that every time you wanted to save your game, you'd have to swap out the game disc and insert the save disc. The game would then write save data to the save disc, and once it would done, it would prompt you to reinsert the game disc so you could continue playing. Not having a hard drive sure does suck, doesn't it? So instead of doing this, the developers decided, uh, and whether or not this is a good idea is up to you, but they decided that instead of writing a copy of the game state uh, to a disk, that is all the statistics about you, your crew, your ship, the state of any planets you visited, how much money you have, where you are in the story, any bit of data you can change about the game, instead of writing all that data to a separate disk, they, they did something a little bit different. So stored on the game disks is, of course, the actual game data, that is the initial state of the entire universe. Most games will use this as a reference point to start new games and, uh, you know, go from there. Instead of simply using it as a reference, though, the Starflight designers would just modify the game data itself when you'd save your game. So since the actual executable game code was so small, the remaining free portion of of the system's base memory, which uh, I believe on an original XT was about 128K, uh, was used as a buffer to store this ever-changing set of game data. So when a user would select save, all that buffered state information would be written to the appropriate game files on the disk. So what you do, and this was stressed very highly and very strongly in the game manual, is uh, you'd buy the game, you'd take it home, and you would immediately make copies of the master game disks. Uh, You would then play from those copies and save the actual game disks as a reference copy if you ever wanted to start a new game. So basically... Starflight, by its own design, was uh, always in hardcore mode. So in theory, this was a fine idea, if, uh, if a little bit cumbersome, but people were used to kind of working a little bit to make, uh, make things work in 1986. However, this system did have one major issue, which remains even today. And I know this because I ran into it, which, and you can go see that on my uh, Starflight uh, research session that I posted up on YouTube. So when you enter the escape menu in the game, you're presented with a few options. You have save and exit, resume game, and something called quit without saving. Now I assume the intention of quit without saving was that if something happened that you didn't like, you could simply exit and return to your previously saved game. Well, this is not so. It turns out that exiting without saving causes the game's data to become corrupt and basically for that set of game disks to become unusable. Now, this happened to me once because I wanted to start a new game and assumed exiting without saving would do what it should have. The second time the game crashed, uh, and I got corrupted that way. Luckily, I had the GOG installer sitting there, so I just reran the install and I started over. However, if I had a game that I had poured hundreds of hours into, which you, you certainly can in this game, I'd be pretty ticked off. 
Throw that aside, the game's music and sound were, I believe, designed by Bob Gonsalves, who's one of the five-man team that uh, developed the game. Uh, the only real music in the game, as far as I could tell, is in the intro, and all sound, obviously, comes from the PC speaker. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. So, Starflight was the brainchild of Rod McConnell, who is described as a pilot and entrepreneur. In 1983, he approached his friend and racquetball partner, Joe Ibarra. Or Ibarra, Y-B-A-R-R-A. So, Ibarra? Sure, we'll go with that. I'm bad at reading names. Uh, So, Ibarra, Joe, whatever you want to call him, um, was a producer at Electronic Arts at the time. Now, McConnell told him that he had an idea for a game, and he wanted to make it. Ybarra said he'd help out on the production end, McConnell just needed to hire a team, so he started looking around. Uh, The first person he hired was one of his colleagues, Dave Bolton. He hired him on as lead programmer. Uh, Bolton had a theory that he could create an infinitely large universe using Mandelbrot sets. Now that's math, you can look it up. There's a song about it by Jonathan Colton, which uh, explains how that works. I'm bad at math, so we'll just skip that. Uh, he also hired Alex Kursko, an engineering student, and Bob Doc Gonsalves, as I said, as a programmer, but he also did the game's music and uh, sound design. So though he created the routines to generate the massive universe, Bolton soon left the project team. Uh, he thought the game they were aiming to create, a space exploration game in the vein of Star Trek, was much too ambitious. So to compensate for his departure, programmer T.C. Lee was brought on, as was programmer and designer Greg Johnson. Now, none of these guys had ever actually made a game before, but they were all smart, and, you know, how hard could it be? So Johnson took on quite a bit of the game design and the uh, the writing. He injected quite a bit of his personality and humor into the game, uh, working under the mentorship of Paul Reich, the designer who had worked on a game they all loved called Archon. He would also go on to create a game I previously talked about, Star Control, which has a a striking resemblance in gameplay to Starflight, shall we say. So Reich told Johnson that uh, if he wanted to keep everything straight in this kind of big world they were creating, he should create what he called a story network, where uh, where he'd map out each plot point on a big sheet of paper. In in between the plot points, uh, he should put the story objects required to get from point A to point B to point C to point D. Uh, This was one of the first sandbox story designs in gaming history, and this system is still used in uh, sandbox games today. Now, Johnson also had a background in what was called biolinguistics. I assume this background came into play when creating uh, the different alien races, as uh, each race, as I mentioned, had a very different vocal style. Uh, The Veloxi would communicate in short, direct sentences, and uh, the Eloan's language is very ornate and flowery, as two examples. This, along with the time and detail put into each race's background and the general history of the universe, really pull the player into a rich world even if the graphics are quite crude by today's standards. But even early on in the project, the team quickly realized they had a hugely ambitious project on their hands. I mean, they were eating, sleeping, and breathing Starflight even back at the beginning in 1983. Because of their inexperience, they were very hungry, they didn't know what they couldn't do, you know, all those great things, but it also means that, you know, deadlines slipped and people questioned over and over again if the game was too ambitious in scope. Uh, You know, could they remove some races? 
Could they remove the planet side aspect of the game? Could they remove the combat, the trading? Why did they have to make what amounted to basically six games in one? In fact, the project was on the brink of cancellation on three separate occasions. One of the major challenges in the development of Starflight was the language it was programmed in. When Dave Bolton first coded the Mandelbrot Universe Generator, or at least the beginnings of it, he decided it should be done in a programming language called Forth. Uh, some important routines were written in Assembler for speed, but the bulk of the game was written in Forth. The reason for this was that Forth is a very compact language. Uh, one of the requirements that uh, was that the game needed to run in 180 kilobytes of RAM, which was the maximum memory size of the first generation XT. Now, I won't get into too much detail about Forth, but uh, frankly, because it's pretty complex and I don't know a ton about it myself, but uh, basically it was a procedural language that was typeless and uh, variables and routines could be redefined at runtime. So a Forth program could effectively rewrite itself while it ran. And aside from Bolton, who left pretty early on in the project, none of the other programmers had much experience with Forth, so it was really a learn-as-you-go sort of experience. A lot of functionality in Starflight was picked up from Forth magazines, Forth conferences, and other correspondence with more experienced developers in the Forth community. And remember, this was like 1983, 1984, 1985, that kind of time. They couldn't just jump on Google and type, how do I do a thing in fourth and have, you know, a whole whack of stack overflow articles telling you exactly what you need to do. I mean, exactly that. They had to read magazines and, you know, if the solution to their problem happened to be in the magazine they were reading, then they were very lucky. They had to write letters. I don't even think they could post on message boards such as they were. Maybe, I don't know if BBSs and Fidonet and stuff were around in 83. I don't think so. But, you know, it was a lot harder to learn a programming language back then. So in addition to the Fractal or Mandelbrot Universe Generator, which Bolton began and the rest of the team completed after what they refer to as six-man years of work, they also created a smaller-scale ecosystem generator, which apparently took another two-man years of work for, you know, kind of generating the uh, terrain and ecosystems on each of the 800 planets. So the game released on August 15th, 1986, which, according to McConnell at least, was at least one year behind schedule. It was an immediate hit, however. Uh, it, it was referred to as the best space exploration game in years, the best sci-fi game of all time, uh, and, you know, they had, without realizing it, created one of the first sandbox games, one of the first games with procedurally generated content, and, uh, you know, the concept of the story network, like I said, is a construct that is still used in game design today. It was the game that defined the genre of, of space exploration games. Now, this, of course, means that Starflight 2 wasn't going to be too far behind the first game. So Starflight 2 takes place a few years after the events of the original. After the climax of the previous game, which I won't get into because, you know, play it yourself, uh, Interstell prohibits the use of Endurium for fuel. Now, the Spemin, a race we encounter in the first game, acquires technology and a new fuel to use it called Shinium. Now, th with this new advantage and this new kind of technological and tactical advantage, the Spemin demand humanity become their slaves. Well, before submitting, Interstell manages to find the continuum flux leading to the general area of space where the Spemin found their technology. So they set up a beachhead there in the form of a starport called Starport Outpost 1. 
you are needed to find the source of this new technology and acquire it for humanity. Well, how do you do this? By exploring, of course. Uh, at a surface level, Starflight 2 plays much the same as Starflight 1. However, basically, and this is only in my opinion, but basically everything in Starflight 2 is about 20% better than it is in Starflight 1, at least. Uh, the game contained 150 systems containing 0 to 8 planets each. Well, the big deal, though, since technically this universe is smaller than the first game, the big deal is that instead of, I think, eight alien races, we're now dealing with 30 sentient species, six of which have their own spacecraft. Also, not only do you land on planets and collect artifacts and resources like you did in the first game, you can now trade artifacts with the inhabitants of those planets. Now, some races sell things that other races want, so you can get quite involved in making charts and trying to figure out who wants what and who sells it and who buys it and, you know, all that if you're really looking to maximize profit. In addition, where the first game had, you know, some aspects of humor and fun amidst a little bit of serious business of space exploration, the sequel goes all the way. Communications from Intercell are sarcastic and funny. Many of the alien races have interesting and humorous aspects to them. Uh, for example, one race is uh, perpetually depressed. Another is split into two factions who are at religious war with one another. Trust me, there's more where that came from. Now, communicating with these aliens uh, is the best way to gather the information you need to complete your primary mission. As always, not everyone will want to be friends with you, so you will have to defend yourself accordingly uh, with regards to uh, ship equipment. Uh, there's there's a wider variety of, of ship modules you can use, uh, weapons that take the place of uh, cargo pods, things like that. So, you know, it's basically a much deeper game than the first one is, even though on the surface it basically looks the same. So Starflight 2, despite being a better game, released in 1989 to mixed reviews. Uh, while it was still a great example of uh, an RPG-style space trading game, some reviewers thought the game was paced too slowly. I mean, you're supposed to be fighting for the survival of the human race, but it never really feels like you're in a rush to do it. Also, the graphics and sound were a little bit updated for the new game, but they still looked much like the original. Uh, and while it used a similar save system to the first game, the massive quit-without-saving bug was, uh, was gone. So, is there anything on the horizon for Starflight? Well, there's been a long-running fan project entitled Starflight 3, but it seems to have stalled out due to uh, the actual scope of gameplay they're trying to develop. Uh, I believe it also had some help, or at least the endorsement of some of the original team, but... Um, you know, posts that I was seeing on kind of their, their forums and stuff were dated like 2006. So uh, unfortunately, I think that project is dead. I didn't see anything in the realm of, of Kickstarter for, uh, for a revival of Starflight. But if any of you guys know about anything, uh, please feel free to let me know. So where can we get our hands on Starflight today? Well, here's another one to grab from GOG.com. Starflight 1 and 2 come in a pack for $5.99 US. Uh, aside from the massive save bug in Starflight 1, uh, the games both run great. I believe you can also get them on Origin, since these are EA games. I think Starflight 1 is 5 bucks, so the pricing isn't quite as good as, uh, as GOG, but uh, if you like Origin, and I know there's somebody that does, uh, go check it out over there. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? 
If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen, too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com All right, so we got one more email, and this one is from Ryan. He writes, Hi Joe, I'm so happy that you picked Starflight for this episode. This is the oldest game that I remember playing. I have very fond memories of going to my grandparents' house and my grandpa taking me into his office and starting up the game for me. I would be there for hours playing Starflight. More than once, I remember corrupting his game by exiting without saving or getting blown up. He never seemed upset at me, even though I was sure I ruined the game because you couldn't get get it back once that happened. It wasn't until much later in life that I finally realized he must have backed up the floppy disk each time right before I came to visit. Now, I was too young to pick up on the subtle hints that you got from uh, communications with alien races or the clues scattered across ruins on distant planets in the universe, so I never progressed far into the story, but that didn't matter. Each time I entered a new system, I remember having the sense of adventure and even nervousness of exploring the unknown. Starflight 2 was just as fun. Uh, by this time, I was playing Sierra Adventure games, so I understood how questing worked. I was able to get further into the story of this game, but still never beat it until many, many years later. Uh, my grandfather has since passed. Whenever I think of him, Starflight comes to mind, and uh, all our fun adventures exploring the universe. I absolutely love these games. I hope you did too. Thank you for reviewing them, Ryan. Well, thank you, Ryan. That's that's awesome. I mean, that's just you know, I've my grandparents were were quite old when uh, when I was growing up. So and you know, they were Italian immigrants. They didn't speak English very well, and all that. So um, you know, they never really got into computers and stuff with me. And uh, but I imagine if they had, it would have been a really really great bonding experience. So it's it's awesome that you could do that with your grandfather. And uh, yeah, awesome, awesome memory. Thank you so much. So, does Starflight hold up today? Well, before I give my verdict, I'm going to make two statements. First, I'm a sci-fi junkie. I love space, I love Star Trek, I love Star Wars, I love big robots, but, you know, especially space travel, the modern space program, uh, anything to do with space exploration... It's my thing, so my opinion might be a little bit clouded here. Secondly, 
these games are not new. The graphics are from 1986. The sound is absolutely from 1986. The UI is clunky. Uh, you have to dig through layers of menus to do anything. Well, this isn't incredibly complex. It definitely is a bit annoying at times. But if you can get past that stuff and you do love space exploration, trading and all that noise, these are awesome games. At first, I was certain I'd not enjoy things because of the graphics, but frankly, they do a pretty good job and I soon forgot about them. I never forgot about the irritating sound though. You know, when you're on a planet, you're kind of tooling around, you feel danger. When you think you may have miscalculated how much fuel you need to get back to your ship, you feel anxiety. You know, when you log a planet for colonization, you feel good. I didn't think Starflight could do that, but it did. I can't completely recommend the first game because of the massive save game corruption bug, but if you're okay with manually backing up your game directory, you can get around it. Still, it's a really big inconvenience, especially if you're going to spend a lot of time with the game. The second game gets a big recommend from me, though. It does everything better than the first, uh, though it's, it's a little bit shorter. I can absolutely see how these games define space exploration as a game genre. Star Control came soon after, and as I mentioned last time, I can completely see how this game directly inspired the planet exploration portion of the original Mass Effect. They kind of took that exploring planets and resource gathering aspect of the game and threw it together with a combat RPG, and boom, you have Mass Effect. So if you can handle the oldness and you can handle the janky save system, give Starflight a go. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's that for yet another show. Sorry for the slight delay in getting it out. As I said at the beginning, I'm deep in half marathon training for my race next week, so time is unfortunately short. As always, I really appreciate everyone's understanding since I'm not always super awesome at keeping to my schedule. Uh, next time, I'm going to go back to the Sierra Bucket and plan on visiting the Laura Bow series. That is the Colonel's Bequest and the Dagger of Amun-Ra. I never played these before, so I'm interested to see how they shake out. Send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at moyermultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can become my boss over at patreon.com slash umbcast. If you find some value from the podcast, please consider joining my nine current patrons in donating a buck or two per show to help me with the cost and to hit that next goal of the news roll-up show. $9, people. $9 away. So check out that show. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. Me personally, at billybob476. You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast, where I put up videos of my research sessions. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and stream us live at Stitcher Radio. And I will see you all next time for Laura Bow here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity?
or do you die here? Join the 